in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. I want to read you guys a story to open this sermon. Uh, in case uh, you guys don't remember or missed uh, the last week or two, we are going through a Jesus Among the World Religions series. So I want to tell you this story from Indian lore or Hindu lore. Uh, this is from a scholar named Timothy Tennant, who's an evangelical scholar writing on uh, the religious roundtable submissions that we're talking about today. Indian lore contains a well-known tale about a Hindu man who spent his entire life as a kind of theistic census taker. He went from village to village, house to house, occupation to occupation, caste to caste, inquiring at every location about which deities were worshipped at that place by those people. Or sorry, about which deities were worshipped at that place by those people. After traveling throughout India and recording the names of all the deities who were worshipped, Tradition states that he chronicled the list in a great book. The number is traditionally held to have been 330 million gods. When the weary traveler finally returned to his home village, exhausted and in his 93rd year, he was asked to count how many gods were in this book. He spent seven years counting the gods, and at the end of the book, he wrote the grand total. One. He declared in his dying breath that there is one god, worshipped in India. This probably didn't actually happen, uh, but it's a really interesting Hindu story and tale about all the many gods in India, yet how they they see them all kind of as one uh, overall supreme being that they call Brahmins. Here this guy spends 93 years as a kind of theistic census taker, counts 330 million gods, and spends seven years trying to kind of categorize them, and he says there is one god. So, uh, for those of you who are just joining us, we're doing a, I don't know, six to ten, six to twelve week series on Jesus among the world religions. We'll see how far we get into each religion, how many weeks each will take. I realized as I was doing my, my sermon prep that this will be at least a two week, Hinduism will be at least a two week, uh, series. And then we'll move on probably to Islam, uh, or Buddhism after that. So, Hinduism is one of the oldest religions in the world. According to some, it is the oldest at about 4,000 years old, and it's the third largest religion in the world. So you have Christianity, then Islam, and then Hinduism. But you don't hear about it that much. You don't hear about it as much as you may hear about Buddhism, which is smaller, or Judaism, which is much smaller. And that's because most of all Hindus live in India. About 80% of them live in India. And in fact, uh, maybe this is getting a little bit into the weeds for a sermon here, but there is a big debate as to whether or not Hinduism even exists. Let me repeat that. There is a big debate among Hindu scholars, Indian scholars, as to whether or not Hinduism exists. So let me just tell you this to open this. Do you guys know the first time that the equivalent of the word Islam was used? It was during Muhammad's life. Do you know the first time that the word Christian would have been used? Some, you know, not in, not in the English language, but the same term. Christian was used shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, just for a few years, the believers were called Nazareans or followers of the way. And then just 10, 15, 20 years after Christ, people start started calling people Christians. Do you guys know when the first use of the word Hinduism was? It's about 150 years ago, 200 years ago, even though this is supposedly a 4,000-year-old religion. So uh, it just gets a bit into the weeds here. We can talk about this after. Um, but what's tricky is that it was actually Westerners, Western missionaries, Western you know, imperial business people and sailors 
who came to India and saw all these practices, and then, in a sense, because of our Western notions of faith, kind of gave a title to all of this polytheistic religion that, that Westerners saw, and called it one thing, which is Hinduism. So, see if you can, just for a moment here, in this intro, see if you can unmake your mind from it, unmake the way that you think. Imagine this, you're living in the year 500 BC, you wake up, and you have your family, you have your food, you're vegetarian, right, because you're of this sort of Hindu persuasion. Uh, you farm, or you do your work, whatever it is, and you go to the market, or whatever, and then you also worship the gods. There's nobody you've ever met, nor will ever meet in your entire life, who does not worship similar gods as you. You're not making a choice. It's not like you're, like, ah, you know, there's all these religious categories, I'm going to search and read and figure out which one I think. No. So in that sense, there is no, like, Hinduism. It's in, like, I choose this category of religious faith. There's just simply the gods, and you worship them, just like you go to work and you know your parents and all the rest. And so in the same way, in much of the world, religion is not a category. It's just simply a way of life. Just like you honor your parents, just like you work during the day or at night, uh, in the same way you honor the gods. It's not like you don't see the world in different filing cabinets that you can open and close like a Westerner tends to see. And so there's this funny thing that happened, is that Western travelers, missionaries, merchants, went to sub-Saharan Africa and saw, and I'm talking about Africa now, went to sub-Saharan Africa and saw all these polytheistic, animistic religions, and they just said, well, these are each unique. Right? All of these different tribes have some similarities in the way that they see the rocks and the moon and the trees, but they each worship different gods. Okay, so those are separate religions. But for whatever reason, similar travelers went to India and saw the same practice of all these different groups worshiping different gods with you know, similar but different traditions, but they call them all the same thing. They call that Hinduism. Uh, and so that's uh, why there's a big debate even among Indians as to whether or not Hinduism is really one religion or just many disparate faiths all uh, kind of put together. So some Indians are calling um, Hinduism, they're saying a better word is Indian spirituality or a uh, sort of a way of life or a family of different faiths. So anyway, okay, that's a bit into the weeds. If you're like kind of bored by that, come back to me now. So there, is, there are three different kinds of Hinduism. There's the religion, there is the ordering of society, and I'm talking about the caste system, if you've heard of that. And then there's the more national identity system, right? Like you see yourself as an Indian, therefore you see yourself as a Hindu. So uh, for those of you who know me, I normally like to dive into a biblical narrative and really get going with that. We're doing a little bit different here. We're doing more lecture style and putting my world religions professor hat on to go through this series. So I want to start with this. Who's heard of the caste system of India? You guys heard of this? Yeah, okay. everyone's heard of it. That's great. Um, so the way that the caste system started is that you had people in the Indian subcontinent just living their normal lives, and then you had a group from the north who were of Aryan descent. Interesting how many problems are caused by Aryans and, and people looking to Aryans and all the rest. But there are people of Aryan descent, uh, the same people who uh, Hitler sort of mythologized as like this sort of race that he wanted to get back to or whatever. It was a, a, a tribe of this descent that moved into the northern part of India. They were taller, they were more technologically advanced, uh, they were lighter skinned, and they are the ones that actually brought a kind of proto-Hindu belief with them. It wasn't, it wasn't so much native to India. They brought these old Rig Vedas, these sort of worships and chants, uh, to India. And uh, lo and behold, 
this is maybe a surprise to you, they decided that society needed to be measured in certain categories, that your society needed to be ordered in a certain way, and that there were four castes, or five, depending on how you count them, and guess who was at the very top? Them, of course. It's the people who moved in, these taller, lighter-skinned, uh, educated people who were of this top caste. And so there are four castes. There's the Brahmins, who are like the priests or scholars, the leaders, the doctors. Uh, there, and that's maybe how it shakes out today. Uh, then below them is the Kshatriya, which is the warriors, nobles, kings, and politicians. Think of them as like the kind of civil servants or state workers. Um, then under them is the Vaishyas, business people or artisans, kind of, uh, skilled producers, some have called them. And then the lowest caste, that's still a proper caste, is called the, the Shudras, which are common laborers or like unskilled, unskilled laborers who are just sort of fulfilling a task for somebody else. And then finally, this is what you guys have heard about, uh, are uh, now they call them the Harijans, uh, but they used to be called the Dalit, which are the downtrodden, the untouchables. Polluted laborers, those who, who wouldn't even be looked at or, or talked to in public. And then Gandhi, actually, of all people, changed the name of them. He called them the Harijans, the children of God. So we'll come back to caste later, but I want to uh, introduce that because we're going to be coming back to caste in our conclusion. I had to find something to sort of focus on and then break so we can get to the rest next week, and I thought caste was a good spot to break that in. So to understand any religion, it helps to look at a 30,000-foot view. So as a bit of review, if you think of this like, you know, why are we here? Who are human beings? Who is God? What is the ultimate purpose of life? And what is our supreme obstacle in accomplishing that ultimate purpose? It's easy, as a Christian, to maybe recount some of those answers. So as Christians, we believe that God is all-powerful, that he created everything out of nothingness, right? That if you want to... Uh, you want some cool points with like a theological sort of uh, nut, you could use the word ex nihilo, that God created ex nihilo, which is out of nothing, which is sort of, that'll give you some cool points if you want to throw that term out someday with me. Uh, he created uh, his creation that we might know him and worship him, and he made us like him in a way. We're made in his image. And our purpose is to magnify and glorify and enjoy God. But to do that, he made us free and free to walk away, which we did. And this marred the image that he put on us. And in order to restore the right understanding that we, we or the, the right standing that we, we ought to have with him, uh, our deeds are not enough. So you guys know this. This is our this is our faith, right? That sin is our central problem. So God himself, since we couldn't be victorious over sin, God himself came down and defeated sin for us. So in a sense, that's our 30,000-foot view of Christianity. So what is Hinduism's 30,000-foot view? Their view is not so much that the universe was created, they believe that the universe is eternal, that we don't know whether it had a creator or if it was created. We're just all caught up in this eternal cycle of uh, eternal, what they call samsara, which is just birth and then death and rebirth. And so for us in the West, this idea of being reincarnated, like re-put into the flesh is really strange, but to them it's really not. So they say, just as sure as we are that all living things die, so we are just as sure that all dead things are reborn. They see it as the same, right? So just as we're sure all of us are going to die someday, so all dead people are reborn. That's just how they, they see it as one and the same. Their central problem is not sin. Their central problem, as a Hindu, believe it or not, is being here. Their central problem is being alive on earth, and it's suffering. It's living. 
in this human form. And our true selves, what they call an Atman, our real self, uh, that is what continues on. And as you die and are reborn and die and reborn, they see that as the true thing, and it's just trying on different jackets, essentially. You're just clothing yourself with a different life, and then that life dies, and you put on a different jacket, and you live your life as somebody else. And in each life, your deeds are weighed. Now we're coming up on another term you guys will have heard of. Depending on how you live, your deeds will affect how you are reborn in the next life or in a life to come. And this is called karma. Who's heard of karma? You guys have heard of this? Yeah. So in the West, the way we use karma is a little bit different. So sometimes I don't follow this account. Sometimes when I go on Twitter, I think Twitter has learned that I think these are funny. Uh, there's a, an account called something like Instant Karma or something like that. And there'll be these viral videos of someone doing something really like, like a jerk would do. And then just instantly suffering right after it, right? So it's like someone like yells at someone in traffic and then they like get into an accident like with a tree or like something like that, right? The kind of things that go viral on the internet. I didn't follow the account and it's just probably not too healthy, but uh, it's funny to see somebody do something that's like a jerk move and then have to suffer for it instantly after. That's how we use the word karma often. I know uh, there's like a famous Taylor Swift song, I forget what it is, but she's using it in that same term, right? Like someone did something bad to her in a relationship and like later, you know, they're gonna suffer for it in that same way. But the Hindus, that's not how they think of karma. For them, karma is a kind of calculus that determines where you will land in your next life. Uh, it's, it's not so much how you'll be treated in a few hours or a few days, but how will you be reborn? Will you be reborn as a high-class person later, or will you be bumped down? Kind of like in uh, the European soccer clubs, right, that if you don't do very well, you get knocked down into a lower tier, right? And that's, that's kind of how the Hindu caste system is. If you're not righteous enough, you'll be knocked down caste in your next life. So think about this. This is really important. Uh, though there's so much gold, there's so much to mine from Hinduism, there is some truth there. Uh, there's also a lot uh, that, that we would challenge and say, uh, under the light of the gospel, this doesn't stand. So think of this. If you are a Brahmin, the priestly class, the top of the world, the idea in Hinduism is, congratulations, your Atman, your true self, must be quite righteous. You've climbed the ladder through thousands of lifetimes, continually you know, just living better and better, and now you are near achieving moksha, which is what they call uh, it's a liberation, true freedom, true nirvana, the Buddhists would call it. And to achieve this end goal, to be liberated, is to finally be free. Right? No longer do you have to keep being reborn and going through this cycle of death and rebirth. Then you finally leave this whole rat race and you go, get to go be with the all soul, the sort of Brahmin soul in the universe. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because Hinduism and Buddhism were really influential in the hippie movement. And so if you're like, wait, this sounds kind of familiar from like those people in college who are like, I just believe in energy, and when I die, my energy goes and joins this cosmic energy force. That's kind of, that's kind of Hinduism light, or it's Hinduism-esque. It's kind of uh, how, what the hippies did with it. Um, so if you're born into this high class, it's like, congratulations, you must be truly good and truly righteous. Here's where it gets really dangerous. And this is the reason we have Buddhism and Jainism and Sikhism and all these other religions, is because the caste system is inherently ugly for those who are not winners. For those who are not winners in the caste system, it is a very oppressive system. Because imagine you are born and untouchable. If the Brahmins are told, congratulations, you must be a righteous person. You were born a Brahmin. Now guess what they say to you if you are born and untouchable? If you are born diseased or crippled? Well, that means you're a pariah now for life. You're an untouchable. No one will look at you. No one will sell gifts to you. You are going to be living essentially in a leprechaun 
your whole life. So what does that say about you? It says, you weren't, it's not just chance that you were born this way. Karma says, you deserve this. Hey, you're crippled, or you're blind, or you are an untouchable. Well, guess what? You had it come. It's the karma. It's the payback for the bad things you must have done in a former life. So this caste system, this karma, has a sort of side to it that seems kind of innocuous. Like, oh, you must be a good person. You're a Brahmin. And if that's all you know, or the high class, maybe it doesn't seem that awful. But then when you look at the untouchables, those who are so oppressed in society, and say, oh, there must be some kind of former sin that sent you there. Now that is, uh, that's, that's a, a belief to reckon with. And that's why Buddhism and Jainism and Sikhism all branched off of Hinduism for that one view of karma, that, that it was so detestable and so ugly for those who came out on the bottom of that system that it ended up birthing other religions. So a lot of people don't know that, that Buddhism comes out of this kind of a branch, a break off of Hinduism. So I don't know if you guys know this, I'm going to give you a moment to think here. Think about this. Does Jesus ever directly address the issue of karma? Now, he wasn't aware of it. He wasn't aware of Hindu society, at least in his human you know, nature. Uh, so he wasn't directly interacting with uh, what was called karma. But there were karmic sort of ideas in the Jewish faith that came out once in a while in sort of different forms, but not all that different. So let me see if you guys remember this. In John 9, the opening verses of John 9, it says, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, you, I, can't, I can't put a stamp on that and say that's exactly common, but it is certainly very close. You see this man born blind, and the disciples say, whose fault is it, Jesus? Is it his fault for his own sin? Or is it his parents' sin, right? Is it something he did in this life that he suffered for by becoming blind? Or is it something that his parents or, or ancestors might have done that he was born blind? Now, to the Hindu, they have an answer. They say, no, it was not his parents' sin. It was his. That's the Hindu answer. It was his sin from a former life. Maybe not this life. It was maybe a life a thousand generations ago that's finally come, come due. But it's his sin. That's why he suffers now. Now he's lowly. He's untouchable. He's blind. Tisk tisk. That's how karma works. And Jesus says, no. No. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Neither this man nor his parents. So why do bad things happen? Why does suffering happen? Why is there evil in the world? Is it because people are getting essentially what they deserve? Jesus says, no. But somehow, so that God's works might be displayed in him. Now, in that case, uh, Jesus goes on to heal him. But there is a case made all throughout Scripture that God does allow suffering, and we don't always understand why, but that God allows suffering somehow in the mysteries that only he can, can fathom. He allows suffering for his glory. But instead of leaving us on our own, instead of us saying, well, why, why do you suffer? This is so unfair. Instead of leaving us on our own to deal with suffering, to, to instead of asking who caused it, to deal with suffering, God himself comes down and suffers with us and suffers for us. The Bible is clear on this. He became rich that we, sorry, he became poor that we, we might become rich. He was humiliated that we might be lifted up. He was punished and killed that we might have life. Karma says, no, you deserve your station. You had it coming. Some are born kings, some are born blind or diseased or poor, but they have it coming. 
And Jesus says, no, some are born kings or blind or diseased or poor, but all of them are completely equal in the eyes of God, made in the image of God. The, uh, a lot of people don't know this. <laughs> Maybe if you're in this church, you know this because I say this a lot. Uh, that the Western concept of human rights, a lot of people think that's just a human given. Like if you're just around for a long enough, you're going to develop this Western concept of human rights. No, the Western concept of human rights is Christian ethics. That's what that is. Even if we've divorced it from the cross, the Western concept that you ought to lift up the poor and those who are downtrodden to help those who are defenseless and to spend your hard-earned resources on those who maybe can't earn those themselves, that's a very Christian ethic. And it's not present in a lot of the other world faiths. So now a lot of people have said, well, no thanks to the cross and Jesus, but we want to hold on to Christian ethics. And they wonder why Christian ethics are starting to go away in our society because the actual source of them is Christ. So the Hindu might say, are you you're kidding me? Are, like, all, all of us are equal? And the Bible's clear, right? Yes, all of us are sinners, all are human beings, made in the image of God, from the poor and the disabled to the king and the poet. And even this, uh, these untouchables, these the, the people in, in Hindu society that are completely outcast, as well as the Brahmin priest who's at the very top, they are identically worthy in the image of God. Now that might not strike us as that strange, because we've been hearing that most of our lives, maybe from, from preaching and from scripture, but that was absolutely revolutionary. When Christian missionaries first started going to these untouchable castes and saying, no, 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 you're just as valuable in the eyes of God as the kings and the warrior class and the, and the priests. So when the, uh, imagine what the Brahmin caste, the highest caste, thought of the gospel. When, when Christian missionaries first arrived with the gospel, you spent 4,000 years on top of society believing that you are the best and that you've earned it in a former life. And all of a sudden, someone comes up and says, hey, you know the people you won't even look at or talk about in private? They are just as worthy as you, and just as close or far from redemption in the eyes of God. But imagine then what the untouchables thought, the lepers, the diseased, the avarna, the people without caste. They're so low, they don't even, they're not even given a caste. Christianity is an incredible threat to a, a true Christianity, not like diseased Christianity or Christian nationalism where you pick your flavor of garbage, but Christ, true Christianity is a threat to the establishment. It's a threat to leaders and to power because it takes the downtrodden and lifts them up. It takes the haughty and makes them low. And it says that all are sinners, equal sinners, all made in the image of God. And that's so revolutionary. So in the early church, there are a ton of stories in Rome about how you have you would have a Roman senator who's basically in the top two or three hundred overall people of all of Rome in terms of power. You'd have a Roman senator worshiping right next to a disabled person, right next to a slave, right next to uh, a widow, right next to uh, an indentured servant from a conquered country. And that they say, as best as we can know, without full historical records of every single place and time, that in Rome, in the Christian church, is probably the first time in human history that was ever happening, where you had the very most powerful in society and the least powerful worshiping side by side as equals. It was probably a first in all of human society. Now, there have been other faiths, other movements since, uh, largely under the influence of that Western image, that Western concept of human rights, that have, have gone the same route. But that's probably the first time that that sort of thing happened. There's a, an Indian proverb, I may have shared this before, it says that the tears of a foreigner are only water. 
Think about that. The tears of a foreigner are only water. Why help others? Right? What? I, here I am, this Brahmin or this you know, warrior class. I deserve my status, right? And they, they deserve theirs. Why should I help foreigners when the tsunami hits or when a uh, pandemic hits or something like that? Why, why should I bother helping people that are not my kin, not my bloodline? Because they come from this idea that people essentially get what they have coming to them, right? People get what they deserve. They've earned it from the past life. But Jesus tells us no. In the Sermon on the Mount, I forget if we went through this specifically when we preached through it um, a few months ago, but Jesus says, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. They're equal in that. He says, uh, Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So when you ask, why do people help there's this interesting figure that came out the other year uh, where charity money comes from around the globe. And what was shocking is that massive amounts of money given to charity only happens in countries with a current or historical association of Christianity or Judaism. Islamic countries, Hindu countries, for all of the goods that they might um, have or, or bring to the world, they don't give to charity because their, their nature, their view of how the world is, does not include the idea that the orphan, the widow, the poor, the suffering person on the other side of the world is of equal value to them. That this idea that they have intrinsic human value, whether they have Down syndrome or they're poor, they're disabled, there's a pandemic happening, they're not going to give away their hard-earned resources to help them because we gotta keep that close for our family. But it's people who come who are either current sort of majority Christian countries or sort of post-Christian but have held on to that ethic who are giving money in the billions to people they've never met nor ever will meet simply to do good to those who are suffering around the world. Karma is you get what you deserve, but grace is that the, one of the central notions of our whole faith is that Jesus got what you deserve. So karma is you get what you deserve. Grace is that Jesus got what you deserve, right? That we are all sinners, we all, all fall short before the glory of God, but that Jesus himself came down, kind of incarnation of God, and we'll talk about this more next week, because the Hindu Hindu believers have a concept for this that you can use if you have Hindu friends to create a bridge for dialogue, but we could not achieve the righteousness of God, but he achieved it for us, right? Karma is that you get what you deserve, but instead, God himself took on what we deserve, and that's the beauty and the grace of the gospel, and so I want you guys to be thinking about this week. Uh, maybe go to Wikipedia and read a bit more on Hinduism, or uh, if, you're, if you're readers or audiobook listeners, there's a fascinating book. It's called Death of a Guru. It's a, uh, a conversion story of a Brahmin priest, kind of a young star in the Hindu world, who became a Christian, and he tells just all about his story. It's one of the most fascinating books I've read. I teach world religions at Northwestern, and sometimes I'll run into my students in the city and they'll be like, hey, I really liked your course. And I reread Death of a Guru on my own time, you know, a year or two, two years after taking your course, which is fun to find that out. Um, so I want you guys to be thinking on this, the difference in how you would view suffering, how you would view the news, how you would, you would view your social media feed, if you truly believed in karma versus if you truly believed in the grace of Jesus, that you and all of the people who are suffering that you read about have the same shared value in the eyes of God, that they are saved by the work of God himself in Jesus on the cross. So think on that this week. I want you to enter into this kind of uh, 
mental um, experiment where you view the news and you view your social media feed as a, uh, an outcome of karma. Everyone who's suffering or sharing their sad story or who's hurting, I want you to think, what would, what would someone believe if they believe those people simply just got what they had coming? Right? How would you feel differently in terms of your sympathy or your empathy toward them? Uh, so kind of an awkward break here, but uh, if I were to keep going, we'd go over our time and we come into the ways of service. Uh, so I'll break here today. We'll finish on Hinduism um, next week. Why don't I pray to close us, and then I might invite you guys to come down afterward um, for refreshments or for our potluck. All right, I'll, uh, I'll pray here. Uh, Father, we thank you for, for your revelation that you have made us in your image, that you have made us equal, whether we are at the top of society and the bottom, whether we come from a privileged background or a hurting background, that we are made in your image and that you found us worthy or meaningful enough, um, full enough to come down as Jesus, live for us, die for us, suffer for us, and that you then lift up the lowly. We, we praise you that you humble the high and lift up the lowly. We pray now that you help open our eyes to um, some of the gold that we might mine from these other systems, that there is wisdom to be found. We know that there is gold in Egypt, as Augustine would say. But we also pray that you'd help us to be discerning and learn what we can learn from other faiths, but also know that uh, there are um, untruths there, even lies. Um, we pray that you would help us to see the difference between karma and grace, especially this week, in what it means to love the lowly and love uh, the poor and the outcast and the sinner. Uh, we pray now for your grace. We thank you for it. Um, we just pray you be with us in our potluck. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.